Failure is not an option. What difference at this point does it make? Nobody said it was going to be fun. This is Real Talk, a fearless, poignant, and intrepid show where truth speaks louder than words. This is Real Talk with your host, Audrey Russo. It's a shame, not of this world, so we live on the run. We keep our eyes set, eyes on what is to come. It happened before, it will happen again. It's just a question of when. Time's a luxury we don't have. What's up, everybody? This is Ryan Weaver, former United States Army Black Hawk aviator and country music artist. I am on with Audrey Russo on Real Talk. Hope you guys have an enjoyable show with us, but don't turn the dial because we want... Hey, that's old school. Don't turn the dial, folks, because we want you to hear the whole show. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is Audrey Russo, and you're listening to Real Talk. The alphabet mafia is being used to undermine the traditional family and therefore Western civilization. Will the West stand up against this before it's too late? Well, we're going to discuss this and more with my next guest, direct from South Africa. For my new listeners... Dr. Peter Hammond is the founder and director of Frontline Fellowship, the founder and chairman of Africa Christian Action, the director of the Christian Action Network, and the chairman of the Reformation Society. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Faith Under Fire in Sudan, In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, The Historical Roots, and The Contemporary Threat. It's my great pleasure to give a real talk welcome back to Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome back, Peter. It's good to be back. Thank you so much, Audrey. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, I, uh, we're going to jump right in here. So we have a new war in Sudan. What do you see going on there, and how do you see America's involvement? Well, it's very interesting. I had friends in Sudan, of course. You know, I've worked a lot in Sudan over the last many years. Since 1995, I conducted 27 missions to Sudan, some for over a month at a time, and I've done over 1,200 meetings inside Sudan, taken hundreds of thousands of Bibles in, established over 100 schools, uh, trained the chaplain's corps, trained the medical corps. So I've had a lot to do with the, with Sudan over the years and keep in touch. So when we just had this recent outbreak of a new war and a new coup, 
were quite horrified because things seemed to have been developing well. There was a ceasefire since uh, 2016, um, since uh, uh, from the moment Donald Trump was elected uh, president, he made some kind of um, deal already with Sudan saying, I know what you want, you want um, to be taken off the terrorist watch list and the end of sanctions. I'll tell you what I want. Here's the deal. No more bombing, no more ground offensives, no more hostilities in Darfur or Blue Nile or uh, in South Kordofan, the Nuba Mountains. And uh, if, when you've been observing a ceasefire for a year, we will remove you from the terrorist watch list and take you off, off um, the sanctions. And lo and behold, that was done. And so we had the most amazing opportunities suddenly starting in end of 2017 that we could work throughout the Nuba Mountains and without fear of aerial bombardments and uh, normal ground offences each wow. season. So a lot of good things happened. We were able to plant a lot of um, boreholes, uh, provide hundreds of thousands of Bibles and books for schools, which were never able to operate. People were hiding in the mountains. The kids were hiding in caves because of the aerial bombardments. It was a scorched earth campaign there. And that came to an end. And then in 2018, there was a popular uprising uh, that overthrew the dictator Omar al-Bashir, uh, who had come to power in a coup in 1989, and he had instituted Sharia law, you know, chopping off of people's heads for converting to Christianity, um, having women flogged for not wearing the veil, things like that. It was a very vicious, horrible situation, people having their hands and feet chopped off, and I've documented and given pictures of that. And and so, um, as my book Faith Undefined Sudan documents this, you know, Sudan was like, the worst hellhole you could imagine. And uh, suddenly they talk about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. Wow. I mean, unprecedented things. Wow. Never heard that in, in the history of Sudan. Not since the British left in 1955 have anything like that. So good things were going on. But then there was a coup in 2021 where the military, who had been aligned in a transitional government with civilians, got rid of the civilians and went back to just full military rule. That wasn't promising. But nevertheless, there still was a promise of moving to civilian um, rule. They were at that stage complaining about corruption and so on, which is probably true, but still. Now, just a few months ago, the Sudan government signed a trade agreement with the Russian Federation, including agreement for the Russian Navy to set up a naval base on the Red Sea, because Sudan does border the Red Sea. 10% of the world's sea traffic and trade goes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. It's a major link between Europe and Asia in terms of trade. So it's a very strategic uh, naval choke point. And surprise, surprise, a few months later, there's a coup d'etat in Sudan. And suddenly, the, the two military groups, there was a paramilitary group called Rapid Support Forces, and there's a Sudan army who had worked together to overthrow the dictatorship of al-Bashir, and worked with the civilians for the transitional government. Now, first they got rid of the civilians. Now, there was a war between the paramilitary, mercenary, entrepreneur, mafia kind of group, uh, rapid support forces, and the Sudan army. And uh, immediately we had people saying, what a coincidence. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, just when Russia wants a naval port on the coast of, of uh, Sudan on the Red Sea, there's suddenly a coup. And... I started getting messages from people in Sudan saying, this is a new proxy war between Russia and America, and this is a typical CIA op. And interesting, there were all kinds of speculations about that. And uh, there was 
a CIA operative who had worked for 26 years uh, in the CIA who came onto a TV program towards the end of uh, last last week. And on Kim Iverson's show, uh, this, this man, this observer, uh, pointed out that there were more CIA operatives and a larger staff of the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum than there is even in Kiev, Ukraine. Wow. wow. And he said, this is all the hallmarks of a CIA operation coming so soon after the agreement for Russia to set up a naval base in the Red Sea. And we had uh, Sudanese leaders also uh, filming um, for TikTok and Twitter and so on, uh, statements that this is another proxy war between America and Russia and really can't you guys get out of it? I was involved with Sudan for many years said, um, this is a war that the West could stop in a heartbeat. And the question was, well, how? And it was, well, just stop supplying the different sides. They are, they're supplying arms to both sides in this war and uh, that they are plainly involved and they've got surrogates doing the fighting for them. It's not just the US either. There's also United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia wow. who are heavily involved in this war. And plainly, they are, they've got their different groups they're backing. So what we're seeing is a war for this very strategic, geostrategic area with very um, vital oil reserves, a lot of minerals. It's a mineral-rich country, but it's an extremely strategic region. And uh, they're being backed by United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, involved. And then you've got the Russian Wagner uh, mercenary group based in Libya, Wars involved. Now, this war's already spilled over the borders uh, because Sudan's involved in the war in Chad, and they're also involved in the war in Yemen, uh, being fighting as surrogates for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, too. It seems Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates have a lot of money, but they don't have citizens willing to fight. Hmm. So they have to recruit other nationalities to do the fighting for them. Of course, they pay them well, but still. And Sudan's provided the forces for Saudi Arabia to patrol the border and to fight their proxy war in Yemen. So already we've got the Sudan war involved in Chad and Yemen. So it's spilled over the borders already. But the chances this could become a more regional war. And there are many people, well, especially missionaries like myself, absolutely aghast. We have poured decades of sacrifice and service into Sudan, seeking to bring about uh, transformation. And we've been seeing churches developed, schools developed, a lot of progress made and the first glimmers of religious freedom that we've seen in the history of Sudan since the British left and suddenly shattered uh, by this, where it looks like superpowers are uh, playing games and having a proxy war on Africa's soil for their international purposes. And it's just outrageous. Um, I might say this reminds me of when I was a guest of Jonas Savimbi of Unita Freedom Fighters in Angola. You may recall um, Ronald Reagan supported UNITA in the fight against the Cubans and the Soviets right. during the Cold War. Right. Well, at that time, I, I was a guest of Jonas Savimbi and ministering and preaching in his units and staying at his headquarters. And uh, at a breakfast where there were some Americans that I'd brought in as guests as well, Jonas Savimbi uh, made a joke. He said, do you know why there hasn't been a revolution in America for over 200 years? And I guess said, no. And he said, there's no American embassy in America. <laughs> now, that's, that's not a very funny joke, but it's unfortunately very true yeah. because there's so many cases where revolutions started from U.S. embassy personnel. And you can just think of Victoria Newland, the oh, um, yeah. Undersecretary of State for uh, the State Department. Uh, she put 
something like five billion dollars into uh, into Ukraine uh, to build up uh, alternative media and uh, opposition parties. And before you knew it, they had a revolution, overthrew the elected government in Ukraine, put an American uh, uh, surrogate, uh, uh, let's say, client state of a pretty corrupt government. And uh, next thing you know, you've got massive amounts of American uh, biological warfare laboratories all over uh, um, Ukraine, plus human trafficking, lots of human sex oh, trade goodness. kidnappings yeah. from Ukraine. And who knows how many of the weapons America sends it ends up in a black market and sold to yeah. terrorists around the world. Because apparently 60% don't arrive in the um, our actual war zones or where they were designated. So we know there's a lot of corruption going on in Sudan. Well, the U.S. Embassy was heavily involved in fomenting revolution in South Africa. I know that because a friend who's a journalist, Ada Parker, documented how the United States Embassy reading room put up in Soweto, uh, which is not the capital city. Soweto is a, a black township south of Johannesburg. But they put a reading room, which it's meant to be an American cultural center, under the U.S. Embassy, so it had... Um, embassy privileges, but it was a reading room, which included lots of videos and so on, but it wasn't about George Washington or Madison or Jefferson or anything like that. It was all about Vladimir Lenin and Karl Marx and uh, Voltaire uh, and um, all kinds of revolutionaries, Castro. Um, I mean, people like uh, Che Guevara, that sort of thing. It was revolution, liberation theology. In the U.S. reading room, 1976, which led to the explosion and the violence and the revolution that ultimately brought such devastating change to South Africa. So the U.S. government's been involved in a lot of revolutions all over the years and assassinations. Yeah. Um, and it seems that uh, the CIA is still involved in this sort of activity. Yes. And I think there's stories coming out about the Jeffrey Epstein connection. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, the CIA connection with Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, uh, all of these things that trickle out every now and then. But so here we are in Sudan, a new war in Africa, a new coup d'etat. They already had seven coup d'etats before this year. So this makes the eighth revolution since 1955 when Sudan achieved its independence. Eight revolutions, and the last one has CIA fingerprints all over it. Again, yet again, uh, this is one extremely dangerous agency in our country that needs to be eliminated, but they seem to be controlling the government at this point. Uh, I wanted to hop over to the uh, tr well, the trans movement, which is really gender dysphoria, but we call it uh, the alphabet mafia because it covers so much. And it's being used blatantly to undermine Western civilization, as we well know. And now it's being used by our military to recruit. To recruit what exactly? I don't know. Their campaign to destroy our military readiness is treasonous. What are your thoughts on this, and have you seen this type of insanity anywhere else in the world? Well, we have seen it uh, somewhat, uh, but uh, it's this is what sort of uh, leads to the total deterioration of a country and, and collapse. Historically, uh, the first transgender um, movement that was really seen in Western civilization was just prior to the French Revolution. Uh, Otto, really? Scott, in, wow. Otto Scott in his book, uh, Robespierre, Inside the French Revolution, documents how uh, in the lead-up to the French Revolution, uh, the homosexual lobby and particularly the cross-dressers and uh, transgenders uh, really came mainstream 
in uh, Paris and Versailles and uh, that even um, normal society was invited to the events and it became very fashionable to be involved in that. In the Weimar Republic, which uh, predated the uh, National Socialist Revolution of Hitler in Germany, you had the first uh, transgender operation, first sex change operation was done in Berlin and the patient died on the operating table. And uh, they had 800 sexually orientated businesses or um, everything from um, straight brothels to cabaret places in Berlin. And this led to this massive backlash, of course, to want to get rid of this kind of filth. And, uh, you know, when, when you have such deterioration in morals in a society, it, it's a death knell of any civilization. And what we are seeing here in Africa, there's quite a few political leaders saying, why is the West treating Africa as a pariah for having laws against homosexuality, and they called a human rights issue here. But why are they not concerned about Bahrain and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, China, where homosexuals are illegal and where they're killed? Uh, they're thrown off buildings and executed and uh, beheaded and hung in many Muslim countries in the Middle East that America has most favored nation status with, and America's totally silent. In fact, didn't we have this major sports event that is being sponsored by many of these people who are being pro-LGBTQ in the West, but they don't say a word about LGBTQ or any gay rights in the Middle East, but they are supporting, yeah. is it the football that's now going to be in one of these Middle Eastern societies where they have the death penalty for homosexuals, but there's no homosexual rights. Right. So it seems, you know, one can be pretty cynical and think these people don't actually care about homosexual rights at all. All they care about is um, a virtue signaling in the West. Yeah. But they're very, very quiet in the Middle East where these things are completely and utterly illegal and, in fact, are a uh, one-way ticket to getting executed. So yeah. I think our Ghana and friends have got a good point where they say, why do you pick on us in Africa where we have laws against us designed to protect our young people, but you're totally silent when your Muslim friends uh, do much worse? Yeah. And they've got a very strong case there. Oh, of course they do, but we know that they're using it to hold on to power. They, the more they destroy the traditional family and Western civilization, the more control they can have. And right now, they're they're tolerating the, the you know their friends yes. there, right? Well, I can tell you, all over Africa, all over Africa, with the exception of South Africa, I'm afraid South Africa is not the same as the rest of Africa because we've got so many people who've been revolutionized, secularized, and um, subverted to an extent that this is the only country in Africa with legalized abortion or with legalized homosexuality. The rest of Africa is completely and utterly illegal. And, uh, for example, in Kenya and Uganda, the government leaders say uh, it's un-African, it's inhuman, it's unchristian, it's illegal, we will never tolerate it. You know, don't um, force your nonsense here. When Obama came with his 2013 uh, tour of Africa, and he was pushing the LGBT agenda all over. It went down like a lead balloon. And the Zambian, uh, I should say the Kenyan president, made an interesting statement. He said, people who have ruined their own country should not come here and lecture us on the way forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought, you know, that's, that's a very good African response. This is not going to happen anywhere in Africa. The people are not interested, and they're very, very hostile. The only place it might happen is South Africa, because this has a communist government, which the U.S. State Department installed upon us, forced upon us, and they are thoroughly corrupted and they are very un-African, yeah, yeah. as you can see with so many things that they promote, which 
Nobody in Africa is interested in like yeah. abortion or the LGBTQ agenda. Exactly. So yeah. I, we're looking at this and we're saying, how is it possible that you can get into trouble for saying something as obvious as there's only two genders or uh, that uh, a man cannot be a woman or uh, marriage can only be between a man and a woman. Uh, those things are now hate speech and thought crimes that can get you fired from your job in Canada and America and Britain. Yeah. You can get arrested for saying that in some places, Australia, New Zealand even. But in Africa, this is the way we see it. And nobody uh, would question the fact that uh, I think you had uh, What is a Woman film came to <laughs> Kenya and asked the, um, the, ma the, the uh, Maasai uh, what they would think about men who said that they could be a woman and so on. And, you know, they, they're crazy. <laughs> and uh, there's, that's actually the way the Africans think. I, I talk with them all the time. When the vaccination was being forced on people, I had a black friend say to me, you know, I think that this vaccine is uh, um, muti or it's magic from from the whites meant to put a curse on us blacks. Mm. I said, yeah, yeah, I think you're pretty right there. And yeah, uh, yeah. they tried to force in our universities, you can't come to university if you don't get this vaccination. And the bulk of black students were absolutely unmovable. It's like no way. And then they were able to say that this vaccination mandate is racist because the black students don't want to have it. And uh, so you are trying to exclude us. And uh, they, they won that battle. Uh, the universities had to back down because the average black person is a Christian and is hostile to these external ideologies and very suspicious and cautious. Sure. So they looked at this and said, this vaccination is just a curse. They want to put a curse on us. Yeah, they weren't far away with that. And as a matter of fact, yeah, recently... Um, the Biden regime tried to pressure Kenya and Uganda that they had to accept um, the the whole alphabet mafia agenda, and and they were doing that by saying, "Well, we give you you know aid," and and they said, "And what? You think you're you're going to pressure us with money? Keep your money." I said, in, in Kenya, they said, and I said, you know, bravo, because this is what they do here with certain states, where um, my state, the state of Tennessee, uh, was the first state to uh, pass a law to protect parents' rights over their children, when, especially when it comes to the, the uh, hormone uh, blockers and the, the what they call... Um, of you know the the gender affirming, but it was this mutilation. It's general mutilation. Yes. And well, uh, in Africa, we know those terms because we've got a big campaign against um, uh, what is called female circumcision or genital mutilation around right. Africa because that's very common in especially Muslim uh, background countries. Right. And so there's been a campaign for years to end uh, female gender mutilation, and so now. Uh, we can see, well, this is a new way of gender mutilation being brought in, uh, adding mastectomies and so on, which normally was reserved for cancer patients. And uh, nobody regarded it as something that you should have. as ge There's nothing gender affirming no. about no. Um, castration and uh, having mastectomies. And now they're calling this gender affirming care. And hysterectomies. Yeah, and hysterectomies. Yeah. Young girls. This is irreversible. So we've got a term in Africa also about end female gendercide. Now, gendercide is so many girls have been targeted, if, especially when you think in some areas where there's limited amounts of children allowed, and then the next thing the girl gets uh, gets um, 
drowned at birth or strangled and so on because their family doesn't want a girl. I believe that happens a lot in China. Well, the term gendercide is now being applied uh, to what they're doing with the so-called men coming into women's sports, that the trans movement is actually female gendercide. It's wiping out women, wiping out women's rights, encroaching on women, uh, even kicking them out of, of their own sports. And uh, I, I think I saw one of the, the best um, MAGA-looking hats recently saying, make woman female again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, white text on red background. Um, women's sports are for women. And yes. to think that America could have gone become so barbaric. Yes. Africans are shocked to hear that you have uh, biological men going into women's uh, locker rooms and change rooms before a sports event yes. and having a biological man uh, literally uh, competing against women and uh, a man who couldn't make 400 in the men's teams yeah. uh, countrywide, but he could go and steal um, some women's careers and yeah. Uh, yeah. trophies and futures. Absolutely unacceptable. And then when Riley uh, Gaines, the yes. American swimmer, testifies in university, she gets assaulted and threatened. Yes. It, this yes. is just insane. We thought that women's rights was won in uh, the West. Yes. Now it seems that this is the worst uh, abuse of women's rights probably ever in the Western world. Yeah, we're wondering where all the lefties and the feminists are uh, when they realize what the, the party that they've been worshipping all this time is doing to them. They don't realize that. I, in our last few minutes, I wanted to uh, talk about quickly the coronation, which just happened. Would you share uh, and give your assessment on what, uh, you, what, what you saw? Because I was not able well, to, to see it. And what I, you I must say... Yes. In Africa, there's a lot of royalists here, and yeah. everything comes to stop. When I was in uh, Zambia lecturing at a university back in uh, 2011, everything came to stop for the wedding of William and Catherine. And uh, the university rigged up big screens, and all the students and faculty were involved, and so I couldn't miss it there. And it seemed like the Zambians are total royalists. It was like us in northern Rhodesia. They were, they were just so uh, caught up in it. And it's amazing. All over Africa, the the fascination with the British royal family and the coronations and the pomp and ceremony in Britain uh, is very exciting. And people are also interested in uh, unique factors such as the fact that in the in the scepter is the massive diamond, the Star of Africa One, which comes from Cullinan Diamond, the largest diamond ever found in the world, which came from South Africa. And in the imperial crown, it's also Cullinan Two or the Star of Africa Two, a diamond from South Africa, which we gifted to Britain in 1906. Well, not only that, but there's also a stone, Jacob's Pillow, they call it, the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny, which uh, Britain stole from Scotland and Scotland stole from Ireland. Ireland had it for many hundreds of years. After the fall of Jerusalem, the uh, uh, last king's uh, pr daughter's, Princess Tia, came, uh, escaped from uh, Jerusalem after Babylon had conquered uh, Jerusalem, killed uh, the, the last princes, the last sons. Uh, before putting out the eyes of King Zedekiah and taking him off to Babylon in exile. But his daughters escaped first to Egypt with uh, the prophet Jeremiah and then escaped through to the British Isles and one married into the Irish royal family, the other into the Scottish royal family. And uh, Princess Tia took the stone of destiny, which they called Jacob's Pillow. It was a red stone, sandstone, about 130 kilograms, with two rings for a pole to go through and for priests to carry it. And this is what Irish kings um, uh, were crowned on at Tara in Ireland for centuries. 
until the Scottish took it about 800 AD. It was there from about six, 700 BC. And uh, so what the Scottish complaint was stolen from them by the British, the Irish say, well, actually, you Scottish stole it from us in Ireland. Uh, but the reason why they fight over it, and this is what the coronation throne made by King Edward back 700 years ago, it's built to specifically accommodate the Stone of Destiny, the Stone of Scone, which is the Stone of Torah and so on. But uh, it's because the link to the people of Israel, uh, because it's um, it comes from the land of Israel, and uh, there's this desire to have this link with the people of God in the Bible and the Old Testament. So mm-hmm. interesting, that's also part of the, the coronation ceremony. Wow. And uh, to listen to the oaths that Charles made, that he's a true Protestant Christian, that he will uphold the Protestant Reformed religion as established by law, he'll govern in accordance with the Gospels of Christ and the laws of God as contained in the Bible. And uh, there were some very meaningful biblical and historic links in the ceremony, but you sort of wonder if they actually understand what they are talking about and uh, if they realize the biblical roots of all this too. Yeah. Uh, even the ceremonies based on the coronations in the Bible, like yeah. 2 Samuel 5, 3. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. The very fact that they do a coronation with, with uh, anointing of oil that comes from Zadok, uh, uh, the priest, and we read in 2 Chronicles 23, 11, they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, that's the scriptures. Then Zadok, uh, Jehoiada, who is the uh, high priest, and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. And all the people shouted out, long live the king. I mean, all these parts of the ceremony are directly from the Bible, straight from Old Testament, straight from Israel and from uh, King David, which they want to see a continuation from, right down to anointing the king, because the king is seen as a minister of justice, just as the the minister in the church who's anointed as bishop and so on is, is a minister of grace, so the king is a minister of justice. And so there is this understanding that before the people can, or the barons can, pledge allegiance to the king, the king must pledge allegiance to the king of kings. Right. And uh, I think there's a lot of good biblical symbolism that's well worth a Bible study, and we can challenge people to to look at the historical and biblical roots of uh, the coronation. But, of course, we are concerned about the man that's been crowned king. He has proven to be a New Age World Economic Forum climate alarmist, and he's brought interfaith into this last Christian service, which his mother never did, of course. But right. he fought with the Church of England, bringing in uh, Hindu, Muslim, uh, and others, oh, Buddhists, to have parts in the service, which has never been done before. And it's against the rules of the Church of England. You're not allowed to have someone who's not a minister of the gospel, who's not a professing Christian, taking part in a worship service in the Church of England. Wow. And the first principle of Magna Carta, the great charter which the king must swear to uphold, is that the rights and duties of the Church of England shall not be infringed. And it seems Charles did that right there at the beginning by insisting on um, other religions being present in what's meant to be a Christian worship service. Wow. Nevertheless, I think this is a great opportunity for us to emphasize the far greater king, the far greater kingdom, the far greater coronation that's still to come. So I've written a Bible study on the kingdom of God and a given a presentation on it, which we've uploaded to our web for anyone who's interested. I think it's a great opportunity for evangelism and to show how Jesus, when he came, he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And today we often preach the gospel of salvation, 
which is part of the kingdom of God, but it's only a small part. Right. The gospel of salvation is often about me, how I can get saved and blessed and healed and delivered. Uh, but uh, the gospel of the kingdom is about God, the king, the king of kings, his right. kingdom, his crown, his coming, uh, his cross, his great commission, his plan and purpose of nations, and what we can do to be faithful subjects, servants, and soldiers of his eternal kingdom as we seek first the kingdom of God. So I think it's seriously important at this stage for us to rediscover what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. The word church actually appears only three times in the Gospels, but kingdom and kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven appears 120 times in the Gospels, which shows the whole emphasis of Jesus' ministry on earth was the kingdom of God, and I think we really do need to rediscover that. Uh, I, I agree. I agree. Peter, where can the listeners follow and support your excellent and critical work and purchase your books? Where can they do all that? Thank you. Well, please visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, Mission, S-A, S-A, short, uh, uh, to symbolize South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org. We're also on Facebook. You can look for Frontline Fellowship. You can see the sword, the word in Africa badge. I'm also on as well. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, or ZA, as Americans would pronounce it. So peter at frontline.org.za. And uh, please do look at our projects and, and uh, different uh, activities on the go. We've got all sorts of things on the go at the moment, books that need printing, Bibles that need purchasing in different languages, missions that we are invited to go on all over the continent. I've got upcoming events where we're even invited to go and minister at Bible colleges of many nations and uh, prison ministry and so on. But we're at a point where we actually cannot even move because our account's empty and we, we're a faith mission. We depend on free will giving of God's people who believe in our work. We've been working for 40 years throughout Africa. I've ministered in 38 countries. And Sudan's just one of the countries we minister in. But uh, we really need people's investment, prayer, and action at this time that we can keep going. Now, we do have links to Give, Send, Go projects. People interested in literature, Africa, or working for Reformation Revival around Africa, or leadership training projects. Uh, these are on our website. So if you want to go on and, and just see some projects that you might be interested in supporting. And, uh, of course, we've got books such as, I wrote the book Faith Under Fire in Sudan and Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, the Historical Roots and Contemporary Threats. These are some things that give one a background to what on earth is going on in Sudan right now. And Frontline Fellowship is a key player in exposing and fighting communism and working for a back to the Bible reformation throughout Africa. Of course, also opposing the LGBTQ agenda, uh, fighting against privileges for perverts. So if <laughs> others would like to support us, find us on Facebook or on the website, Frontline Fellowship or FrontlineMissionSA.org. Excellent. Thank you so much, Audrey. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as always, I will have all of those links, especially for the Give, Send, Go projects in my after show, which is now on a live show page. Just go to AudreyRusso.com, click on the on our button, and right under the show description, you'll find all the links and info that you need to follow Peter's work. Thanks so much, Peter, again, for taking the time to share your brilliant assessments on, the, on, this, on these things and sharing about your work. We look forward to your return to the show. Until then, may God bless you, your work, and may God save America. Bye for now. Thank you so much, Eva. <laughs>